Last week, we started Galatians. We got through one and two, and at the end of the day, Mike said, you're gonna have to circle back because you blew through some stuff that Paul said that is hard to understand. So I'm gonna circle back to use a uh, White House term, and we're gonna go back to Galatians 2.15, and we'll go from there. Now, there's a couple of concepts here, and I'm gonna take them in reverse order. In verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Yeshua Messiah. Works of the law is going to be what we're going to talk about most of the rest of the evening, so I'm going to skip down to verse 17, unpack 17, and then we'll go into chapter 3, which talks about works of the law and what they are. Actually, Galatians doesn't talk about what they are. I'm going to. So, down to verse 17 now. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. We explained that last time, but just quickly, if Messiah is justified and we are sinners, does that mean then that Messiah is servant of sin and he says of course not because the fact that you're forgiven of your sins doesn't mean that the one who forgave you is an agent of sin if you will that on to verse 18 for if i rebuild what i tore down i proved myself to be a transgressor so what did he tear down and the answer to that we're going to spend a lot of time with tonight but what he took down was the rabbinic or the pharisaic understanding of Torah. That's basically what he's talking about. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Cross-reference that to Romans 7. Paul, God bless him, once he gets an argument, will use it in several places. Now, he's using the same argument in Romans 7 as he is using here, but he's using it in a slightly different context. So now, Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And here he says in verse 19 of Galatians 2, for through the law I died to the law. So we're talking about the authority of law in you once you're dead. In Romans 7, he's going to use an example which he doesn't use in Galatians, but I'm suggesting he's making the same argument. So, Romans 7, 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So the idea here is death sets you into a new regime. This woman was married, married to a man, 
The man dies. The regime now changes. Her status is now changed. She is no longer bound to her husband because her husband no longer exists. What he's saying in Galatians is, according to the law, I died, and because I am dead and raised from the dead, I am no longer bound by the thing I was bound by before my death. So what does he mean? Well, for those of you who have been around for a while, he's talking about baptism. Because as regulars here know, baptism is an entirely Jewish thing. It is well known in Judaism, and it's called a mikvah, which is the gathering of waters. And the idea is that you use the waters to transition between the realm of death and the realm of life. Poster child for that is a person who has a sexual discharge, either a woman in her menses or a man a discharge of semen. For a time there, the ability to pass on life has gone out of him. So in that sense, he is now in the realm of death. In order to get back into the realm of life, he must be born again. That's entirely Jewish, by the way. It is not just Christian. So what you do is you go down through the water, which symbolizes death or drowning. Think the flood, for example. Goes down through the water and comes up on the other side, and he is reborn. So what Paul is saying is, when I was baptized into Messiah, I went down through the waters and I came up a new creation. I was reborn. And the things that had sway over me before I was reborn didn't follow me through the water and come up on the other side. So he's using the same argument that he's using here with the woman who was a widow. Through death, in this case, the death of her husband, she is released from the law of marriage with respect to him. If she marries again, she comes back under the law of marriage with respect to her new husband. But her husband has died, and she then is free to remarry, and she's not an adulteress. So what Paul is saying here is, according to the law, I died to the law, came up, was reborn, and am now a new creature in Christ, and the thing that had sway over me before no longer does. So what you have is a parallel argument here between Romans 7 and Galatians 2. He uses that argument at least in two places. you got to read them both to understand entirely what he's talking about. And by the way, he does the same thing in a couple of different letters with respect to food sacrifice to idols. And he writes about it slightly differently in both cases. And in order to understand what he's talking about, you need to bring them together and read it all because he doesn't make a complete argument in each letter. So this business of through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What he's saying is, I have died and been reborn. I am a new creature. Now, I 
read this years ago. It's quite good. I went back and read some more of it last time. It's uh, Galatians, and it's by Avi ben Mordecai, who is a American-born Jew, lives in Jerusalem, wrote an entire book here on Galatians. In the section we're going to talk about, which is about works of the law, he also has a conversation that goes back and forth between him and Nehemiah Gordon. Many of you know Nehemiah and many of you know Avi. They've both been here to the congregation in the past. Nehemiah is a Karaite Jew. He is not a rabbinic Jew. Born in Chicago. Good guy. He is also a language scholar. And to the best of my knowledge, he reads at least English, Hebrew, and Greek. He's done lots of commentaries on the New Testament. And in fact, he has a discussion with Avi here on Galatians, even though he is not a Christian. But he is extremely knowledgeable on the Greek text, and Avi is a Jew, also not rabbinic. So let's talk about works of the law. And I'm going to quote from these guys a little bit. Works of the law are called ma'asim in the Hebrew. And what a work of the law is in the rabbinic structure is a decision by a rabbi. They have several examples in here. One example is somebody wants to know, all right, we're getting off of a ship on the Sabbath, and a Gentile puts down a gangplank. Are we allowed to walk on it? Serious question. So what they discover is a couple of other rabbis in the past had docked on the Sabbath, a Gentile had put down the gangplank, and they walked down the gangplank, and if those righteous men did it, it must be okay. So what they do is they will find a situation in history or in Talmudic literature where somebody prior to them and more righteous has done something, and the fact that that righteous person did it must mean that it's okay for us to do it too. Those are works of the law. And in fact, in here, they say that Muslims do much the same thing. So if somebody says that Muhammad once did something, even though it's not in the Quran, the fact that Muhammad did it must mean that it's okay for us to do it and it's something that we are required to do because Muhammad once did it. So what you have in the oral Torah, which is now written down in the Mishnah and so forth, is a whole bunch of these stories. And the stories then become the basis of how rabbinic Jews and Pharisees, because the rabbis today are the descendants of the Pharisees, which the rabbis today will freely and proudly admit, not saying anything that they wouldn't say themselves. So the Pharisaic way of thinking we see today in the rabbinic way of thinking. It's exactly the same thing. I'll give you another example. There's a, an old story about the Tanur Yavne. After the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, a group of rabbis moved to Yavne, which is on the coast of Israel, and they set up a yeshiva. And the question was, without a country and without a capital city, can we still live? Can the Jews continue to exist now that all of our infrastructure has been destroyed? 
And there were two points of view. One said, no, we can't. The other said, yes, we can. They were arguing about it, oddly enough, in the context of a tonneur, which is a clay oven. The question becomes, is this clay oven kosher or not? And Rabbi Eleazar said, absolutely not. Can't be used. The rest of them said, yeah, it's just fine. So Rabbi Eliezer says, well, if I'm right, that stream will turn around and flow back uphill. Stream turns around and flows back uphill. The rest of the rabbi says, we don't listen to streams. It's okay. So Eliezer says again, if I'm right, the walls of this building will collapse. The walls start to come down. And the rest of them said, stop. We don't listen to walls. And the wall remained leaning in. Finally, Eleazar said, if I'm right, a voice from heaven will say so. And a voice from heaven says, Eleazar's right, listen to him. And the rest of the rabbi says, we don't listen to voices from heaven because the Torah says the Torah is down here. And in Deuteronomy, it says it is not too far that you have to go up to heaven to get it. It's not too far that you have to cross the sea to get it. It's right there. So the Torah is now ours. In our position, we don't listen to voices from heaven. So the rabbinic understanding is our behavior, our traditions, and so forth, because the Torah is down here, trumps the written word of God in the Torah of Moses. This is no canard. This is all in the rabbinic literature. No secret about any of it. And I'm not being catty toward them. I'm simply explaining their attitude. Paul, before his conversion on the road to Damascus, was deeply immersed in that system and that way of thought. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So what happened was Yeshua grabbed him by the stacking swivel, knocked him off his ass, and explained it to him in different terms. And he went into Arabia and went to Mount Sinai, where he had an encounter with God, and God explained it to him. So when Paul is talking about works of the law, when Paul is arguing in absentia what these Pharisaic, Messianic Jews, who are known as the circumcision party, and their attitude is, because they're former Pharisees, in order to be saved, you got to get circumcised and you got to follow the law, meaning our law works of the law, the oral Torah, much of which is extra-biblical, but certainly some of it is, in fact, counter to Moses. Yeshua himself says that when he's duking it out with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. And he uses the example of, you've dedicated your money to the temple, and you guys say that that frees you from obligation to help your parents. Moses doesn't say that, guys. That's your law. That's not Moses. You've all heard this before, but in the New Testament, when Yeshua talks, he talks in two terms. He says, one, you say, or your traditions say, or the traditions of the elders say, versus it is written. So when he says it is written, he's referring to Moses as written. When he says, you say, or your traditions say, or whatever, he's referring to the oral Torah as understood by the Pharisees. 
Paul is doing much the same thing. And as you read Paul, it's in Greek, so you don't have the nuance of Hebrew to tell you what he's talking about in some cases, and you sort of got to figure it out from context. So when he says no one is saved by works of the law, he's specifically talking about works of the law, which are ma'asim, which are these Pharisaic emendations and additions to Scripture. Now, one more thing, and then we'll dive into this. The sequence in Torah is God first introduces himself in Genesis. He says, I'm God, you're not. And we come to know God, or if you're a Calvinist, he comes to know you. I mean, it works out the same thing either way. Then he reaches into the world and brings Israel out of Egypt by his own sovereign power and grace. All Israel has to do is get up and walk when they're told to. They do not do anything else that facilitates the exodus. They are passive participants watching the whole thing unfold until such time as Moses says, all right, take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, stay indoors until the next morning, and then we're leaving. So it isn't by the works of the Israelites that they are saved. They are saved by grace. They are saved by the grace and power of God, not by any works that they do. God then takes them through a baptism, the Red Sea. Remember my riff earlier about baptism, where you go down into the water symbolizing death and you come up on the other side reborn. Well, the Egyptians also tried to follow them into the water and the Egyptians didn't come up the other side. And by the way, the Jews recognize that. This is not Christian theology, it's Jewish theology. Once they come up on the other side, they then go to Sinai, and that's where they get the Torah. They do not get the Torah before they start. They get the Torah after their rebirth and come up on the other side. The Torah is not designed to save you. It is designed to teach you how to live once you have been saved and are a member of the kingdom of God. That's what the Torah's purpose is. It is not designed for salvation. Never was, never has been. And by the way, I have no doubt in my military mind that Paul understands everything I just said pretty much the way I just said it. He has had his orientation changed by the Messiah when he got sent off into the desert. And now he is dead set against Pharisaic Judaism and his argument is with Pharisaic Judaism, not with Moses. So that is sort of what's going on back in chapter 2 in verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Messiah Yeshua. So we also have believed in Messiah Yeshua in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now he's talking works of the law, which is Pharisaic. Remember I said this works of the law thing is a Pharisaic technical term. So he's definitely saying, hey, you guys have been harassed 
by these Pharisaic messianic Jews who are coming to tell you you got to do more stuff in order to be saved. What I'm telling you is that's bunk. That's what verses 15 and 16 are saying. Then 17 through 21, he talks about symbolically his death and rebirth. And as he comes up reborn, this Pharisaic law that held him before that happened now has no more hold on him. So now we're down in three. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Yeshua Messiah was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Rhetorical question. First thing is they receive the Spirit. I am suggesting to you that in Scripture, whenever somebody gets the Spirit, there's a manifestation. So when Cornelius and his household got the Spirit, everybody around there knew something had happened. So what I'm assuming here, when Paul preached to them, they believed, they in fact got the Holy Spirit in much the same way, and it was visible. So what he's saying is, you guys got the Spirit. And oh, by the way, I didn't mention anything about works of the law. Just like Cornelius got the Spirit, and Peter didn't teach anything about works of the law. So what he's saying is, you got the Spirit, there was a demonstration of the power of God, and there wasn't anything about the works of the law in that process. Verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? So what I'm suggesting to you was going on in Galatia is you had demonstrations of the power of God in the church. And Paul says, I never told you anything about works of the law, yet this is happening among you. So having done that, are you now going to change horses in midstream and try and do something else? Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You all know Genesis 12 is where he's called. He had promised to be a blessing to the nation. That's the call of Abraham. And when Abraham believes him, God counts it to him for righteousness. Notice righteousness comes by faith to Abraham. comes by faith to everybody. There's only one way, and it comes by faith. Verse 10. For those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, I have a quarrel with Paul here. I think he is misquoting scripture, and I'll show you why. You can decide for yourselves. Where he is is in Deuteronomy 27-26. This is Moses telling 
the children of Israel, when they get to the far shore and they get to the land, half of the nation is going to stand on Mount Gerizim and half of the nation is going to stand on Mount Ebal. Half of the nation is going to stand for the blessing and the other half is going to stand for the curse, right? You all remember your Genesis. And if you read these curses that are called out, and they're called out by the Levites who are standing in the middle. So, cursed be a man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. The key here is in secret. Every one of these is a secret sin, not a public sin. So, cursing your parents, that happens inside the family. Moving a neighbor's landmark is something you do in the dead of night. Somebody who takes a bribe, that's done in secret. It's not done in the open. Every one of these curses is on somebody who does a sin in secret. This is not the entire Torah. This is a series of curses against secret sin. And what God says in other places is, the secret things belong to me, You guys take care of the public stuff. You don't have to go sneaking around looking in people's windows to find out what they're doing. I'll take care of the secret stuff. You take care of the stuff that happens in public. So at the end of that, verse 26 is what Paul is quoting. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and the people shall say, Amen. At least in my view, What we're talking about is this series of secret sins. We're not talking about the entire Torah. Now, Paul is using that as a proof text, and he's Paul and I'm not, and he's the one that's in the Bible and I'm not. So do with that, it seems good to you. But I think he's using it slightly out of context for emphasis. So that's a slight quibble with Paul's argument here. I think he's being like a good Baptist and grabbing a Bible soundbite because it fits what he wants to say. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And again, I am suggesting to you that is a slight misquote. And that comes from Habakkuk 2.4, I believe. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And that echoes Deuteronomy, which is to say that the Torah is your life. The Torah is intended to bring life. So your faith brings life to you. So the righteous shall live by his faith indicates that his faith is the thing that confers life upon him. And the same thing is in Deuteronomy, essentially, where doing Torah is intended to bring life. You'll have a good life and so forth. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5 You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, that to me is awkward because it 
It's sort of like living by a rule. This is the rule I live by. That's the way it sort of reads in English. The rule I live by is always tell the truth. I don't believe that's what's being said here. If a person does them, he shall live by them, which is to say doing them brings life. I think that's the sense of the passage. Translated in English, it's a bit awkward. But the idea there is following Torah brings life. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them, which is to say they are intended to bring life to you. It is not a salvation thing. It is a good life thing, long life, prosperous life, happy life, not having anything to do with afterlife. 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's correct and in context. They don't have any quibble with that at all. So that in Christ Yeshua, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And I talked about that on Shabbat. The idea that the sacrifice of Messiah was the thing that enabled the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. And in the context I was talking about it on Shabbat, we're talking about it in the context of his final word. It is finished. And what I am saying is, it is finished is not a great translation for an English speaker because it indicates that something is over. The way I would translate it is, Touchdown. I have reached my goal. I have done the thing I was told to do. In a game, there are more goals to be achieved. And certainly in this world, there are more goals to be achieved. That was a vital intermediate goal that allowed the Gentiles to come in. But now there are other goals that will yet be achieved. And that, by the way, is a legitimate translation of the Greek word telos, which is what it is in Greek. Fifteen. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one knows it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the argument he's making here is God made a covenant with Abraham 430 years before Sinai. Therefore, Sinai cannot annul that covenant. I mean, that's his argument in 25 words or less. Since the covenant was made without the law, with no law whatsoever, with Abraham in Genesis 15, Sinai cannot annul it because we have the same parties. We have Israel now and God, whereas before we had Israel nascent, in other words, in Abraham. Israel is still in Abraham's loins at that point. Same parties, if you will. Torah 
doesn't change the original covenant made with Abraham. That's his argument. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, Moses, in other words. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Yeshua Messiah might be given to those who believe. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Messiah Yeshua, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All right, let's go back to this guardianship. The idea here is a guardian or a schoolmaster or whatever. And a guardian is put in charge of the son. The guardian has the ability and the authority to punish that little rascal, got the authority to grab him by the ear and drag him back in there and sit him down, all of that kind of stuff. So the pupil's not entirely under his own will. He's got somebody making him do stuff that he doesn't necessarily want to do. That's the whole purpose of a guardian or a teacher. The guardian is to teach you. The guardian is to raise you up. The guardian is to enculturate you. All those kinds of things we expect a guardian or teacher to do for the child. So now the child is an adult which means that the child is no longer under the guardian. The child is no longer being told what to do by someone else. The child now gets to decide for himself what he wants to do. Does that mean that he has forgotten what the guardian taught him as he was growing up? One certainly hopes not. The whole purpose of a guardian is so that by the time you grow the child up, and he is ready to step off as an adult, he will have absorbed the culture, the manners, the knowledge, all of that that you want him to absorb. So when he steps off now as a mature man under his own power, you expect him to be a good man in accordance with the culture that you taught him. So the idea then that we have a guardian over us for a time, and now we are stepping out as adults doesn't mean that we forgot everything the guardian has taught us in a thousand years. He will use the same example with respect to slavery. And he's going to make this same point a couple of different times as we go through the letter. But the essence of what he's saying is the purpose of the Torah was to enculturate us 
so that we are good citizens of God's kingdom. And a good citizen of God's kingdom is not a murderer, he's not an adulterer, he's not a thief, he's not covetous, he's not any of those things. And so while we were under a guardian or a schoolmaster or whatever, the fact that he isn't a thief is because he was afraid of getting his knuckles wrapped. That's why he wasn't a thief at first. But by the time he grows up and is ready to step off on his own, one hopes he will have learned the lesson and will not then go out and use his freedom to steal. Paul will say that same thing, by the way, in Romans. Wait a minute, you guys are free. Does that mean you're going to use your freedom to sin? God forbid. And the question then becomes, what's sin? Oh, sin is defined in the Torah. So the fact that you're not under a schoolmaster, you're not under a slave owner, you're not under whatever doesn't mean that you have forgotten all the lessons that the Torah was intended to teach you. The comment was that in a way this seems counterintuitive because what we do is we go back and we study the Torah. Well, if we've learned it all, why do we need to study it? And that's the essence of what the New Covenant is. You remember that the New Covenant, by definition, is the Torah written where it's supposed to be written, which is on the human heart instead of on tablets of stone. I don't have it completely written on my heart yet. As you know, there are two circumcisions of the heart in Deuteronomy. The first circumcision of the heart is Moses says, you circumcise your heart so that it'll go well with you. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, he says, eh, God will circumcise your heart and he'll do it right. So the whole point is until, and I believe it's a new heaven and a new earth thing, but until we receive the inheritance that is promised us, we still need to go back to the schoolmaster and relearn those lessons so we don't forget. When the Torah is finally written where it's supposed to be written on our heart, which I believe, as I say, is a new heaven and a new earth thing, then, yeah, we don't have to. The idea that people take Galatians, and it's easy to do, because the language here is technical, rabbinic, Jewish language that most Christians are completely unfamiliar with. They just see law. And they say, oh, okay, that must mean the Torah. Not in every case. And it takes some unpacking to figure out sometimes what he's talking about. I slid by something here. Hang on. Go back to verse 10, 310. I slid by this and I meant to make a big point of it. So Galatians 310. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, ding, 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 ding. Notice that he's shifted gears on you, just like Yeshua does. So the first thing he's talking about, works of the law, which is a Pharisaic technical term. And then he says, it's written, which now goes back to Moses. So, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. And that's where I was talking about the curses at Mount Ebal. Notice that he switches there between works of the law and it is written, just like Yeshua does. I was reading Avi here, and one of the things he said, which I agree with, is he's writing a letter here. He's not 
writing a thesis. He's not sitting down and composing a thesis. He's writing a letter into a problem. And he's saying, you guys got this problem, you need to straighten out. He's not writing a systematic theology. He also knows these people personally. He has taught them. He has lived among them. So he knows what he has told them. He knows what he's talked about. So he is able to talk to them with things that are referred to by common understanding that we're not privy to. And then the final thing that's going on is letters are expensive in that world. It's not like I'm doing right now where I can sit down and I can yammer on for an hour here and then get somebody to transcribe it or get a machine to transcribe it for that matter and send it off. He's got a scribe sitting there copying down what he says. An expensive scribe on expensive media copying down what he says. So what you have here is he is walking around stream of consciousness talking and somebody is writing it down for him. This is not, as I say, a thesis where he sits down, formulates a thesis statement, writes it all out, edits it three or four times, etc. That's not what we're dealing with here. So the fact that he uses things like this business with the uh, secret sins, I suspect that that's just what went through his head and he said it and just blazed right on. But my point is, we have several problems. One is, of course, we're reading this in translation. Second is he's probably thinking in Hebrew and writing in Greek. Third thing is we're not privy to the things that he has said to these people when he was with them. And finally, we don't know the culture of the age like they did. So all of those things make this difficult to understand. And if somebody hands it to you nefariously first, it's very easy to be misled. And you all know who Marcion was? First or second century guy, absolutely an anti-Semite. Well, it turns out he rewrote all of Paul's letters. Now, he was declared a heretic, but he was very influential. And so his translations of Paul's letters are banging around the Mediterranean basin. And first off, he says, you don't want to have anything to do with the Old Testament. That's all Jewish. You want the book of Luke and you want Paul's letters. And he went through and edited those documents himself to get rid of Jewish influences. Those documents were flailing around this area. And so people who have read Marcion and then read this, it's sort of like most Sunday Christians get handed the Bible, John first. Read the book of John. John's a wonderful book. I love John, but there's stuff in John that just doesn't make any sense if you don't know the Torah. And so what happens is people will read it in modern English understanding and will miss a whole bunch of them. 